Hi, everybody. It's Amy Stevens from Transformation Thursday. I'm here with Penny. And you know what? I'm just going to take a moment and just kind of go into some a little bit of I want to give you a content warning is really what I want to do, because this episode really deals with sexual assault. And how did you describe it, Penny? Uh, it, it talks about it in a frank nature. We don't go into it, but it talks about intimacy and ways of making safe, intimate spaces on the stage. And that includes in sometimes when scenes of, of sexual aggression and rape. Yep. And so one of the things is we have a very frank conversation with Jace, our guest, through this. We don't go into anything graphic or details, anything that's inappropriate per se. But one of the things as we were working through this episode that we realized is that it is triggering. It tr triggered both Penny and I at different points throughout the conversation. And we bring that up throughout the episode. So we just wanted to give you this friendly content warning. So if you are triggered by th those types of conversations... I don't want to say don't listen, but this might be one for you to skip. Thanks, everybody. And as always, we welcome your feedback. Thank you very much and enjoy the show. Recorded live from the wayofm.org studios in the fabulous Fetter Building in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her as well. In this podcast, we take an objective look at dramatic change. And as two transgender women, I think we know a thing or two about that, Penny. And we will talk about transgender issues on the show in a way that we think will be both informative and entertaining. But we'll also be looking at the amazing number of radical changes we're experiencing in our society as well. On today's show, we're going to talk about intimacy in theater. Attention is now being paid attention to creating safe and respectful spaces for actors in performances. Intimacy directing is a new specialty, and our guest, Jace Meyer Crosby, is doing great work in their field. He'll talk about how intimacy directing is making theater a better place. In our second segment, there's a new study that says transgender people are, quote, it's hard to even say this, significantly less liberal, end quote, than even cisgender men. Ooh. Are we allergic to avocado toast or is it that we can even make MAGA gear look good? Quick disclaimer, I love avocado and hate this current president. The study did reveal something else that's of interest to me and we'll discuss the whole Megillah in about a half an hour. But for now, let's continue with that time-honored tradition of the music swell and fade out. Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh God, I hope so. Okay then, TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure, I can give that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm still Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are still she, her as well. And we have our guest, and why don't we let you introduce yourself? I'm Jace Meyer Crosby, and my pronouns are he, him. And you are a new, well, a, a new position, relatively new position, probably the newest position in the field of theater, an intimacy director? That's right. 
All right. I have known you for uh, about three or four years, and I've, I've, I've watched you start doing this, and it is fascinating. I was really excited to, to see uh, all the cool things that are happening for you right now. I know you are directing a play uh, that deals with intimacy in the, in the Fringe Festival. Yeah, so uh, my husband and I actually produce theater as a company called, uh, oh, my husband and I and our partner, um, uh, we produce theater as... Uh, Grain Noise Theater Company, and uh, we're doing a show for the French festival festival called Homo Familiaris, which is a series of short scenes and pieces about different types of closeness. Sometimes just physical closeness, but also lots of types of types of intimacy. Now, these some of these are excerpts from existing theater performances, and some of them are stuff you have created specifically for the show. Yeah, we've got excerpts from a couple plays. We've got a scene from Othello, a scene from. Um, God of Vengeance, which is the play that Indecent, um, that was at the JCC this last year, was based on. Um, and then a lot of original pieces as well. That's really cool. And one of the people that's involved with that is um, Alec Barber? Yeah, he's our fight director. Um, but also because, uh, and you know, we'll get into this in a second, but because I am uh, directing the piece as a whole, the sort of power dynamics of that make me not the ideal choice for the intimacy director for the production as well. So Alec is going to be, um, in addition to being the fight director, he's also the assistant intimacy director to sort of, uh, change the, uh, Basically, if I'm the director and I tell the actors to do something, they'll do it. They won't necessarily consent to it first. They'll just be like, oh, the director said to do a thing. And so Alex there to help with that. Yeah. And you guys are also going to be are doing uh, a, a workshop, a really interestingly named workshop together at, at the Muck. Um, make Bold Choices. Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah. Make Bold Choices, Consent and Performance. Um, the premise of it is that uh, a lot of performers think that taking time to check for and establish consent is going to make the process of creating and rehearsing theater uh, clunky and laborious and that it's going to interrupt things and make them take longer. Um, and that it also is going to sort of inhibit the creative flow of the performer who wants to just be able to do whatever they want when they walk into a scene with their partner. Um, but we're providing this workshop to sort of uh, offer the alternate narrative that once consent is established and boundaries are in place, freedom within that boundary, those boundaries, are, is actually so much more um, not only safe for everybody involved, but you have so many more options and you need to stop because someone has been made uncomfortable, hopefully never, but certainly much less. Because if those boundaries are established and no one is crossing those boundaries, anything else goes. And we can just make art and we can get through the process actually really efficiently and make even more daring choices because we know that they're not going to violate anyone involved in the scene. And the fact that you can speak to this was such... Uh, eloquence and an ability is oh you're sweet oh well you you well you can <laughs> I've been stammering all I'm sipping water over here like what is wrong with my tongue oh <laughs> uh, it, it it came out magnificently from from where I'm sitting uh, but because the reason why you can do all these things is because you are this brand spanking new relatively speaking position in theater an intimacy director yeah so the the discipline of intimacy direction. Um, was actually uh, invented, meaning it certainly hadn't been popularized yet, uh, but invented way back in 2005. Um, and it was by um, someone named uh, Tonia Cena Campanella. And uh, Tonia basically was in academia and was seeing a lot of sort of abusive authority between the faculty and staff and the students. Sort of the same dynamic I spoke about where the director tells you to do the thing, the person in authority tells you to do the thing, and you just do it without really considering whether or not you're okay with it. So causing a lot of sort of emotional damage for actors who feel that they just need to suck it up in order to succeed in the industry. So she did a lot of research. Um, she was a mover. She was involved in fight choreography at first, and she took her expertise and brought this element of consent and intimacy design as well as violence design um, to life. Uh, since then, she was just really working to spread the word, find other allies along the way. And by 2015, um, she had crossed paths with Siobhan Richardson, who's doing the same thing in Canada, and Alicia Rodis, who started as a stunt coordinator for film, 
Uh, and the three of them joined forces and were later joined by Claire Warden from the UK, and they founded Intimacy Directors International in 2015. Um, so uh, the organization that uh, trained me has only been around for um, just about four years. Due to the uh, Me Too movement and a lot of the sexual harassment and abuse that was getting exposed in the entertainment industry, um, the fact that we were already doing this work started to make national news. Um, mainly Alicia Rodas's work um, for HBO as an intimacy coordinator. It's called an intimacy coordinator for television and film and an intimacy director for the stage, sort of like it's a stunt coordinator in film and a fight director for stage, kind of analogous there. And she is the first ever intimacy coordinator on a film set. She worked on uh, season two and beyond of uh, The Deuce for HBO. And because of the amazing job that she did, HBO actually enacted a policy that they would never uh, contract a new show without also contracting an intimacy coordinator. So it's definitely becoming an industry standard. A lot more people are talking about this work now because of sort of the momentum of the Me Too movement carrying us along. Um, uh, and just recently, uh, Claire Warden served as the first intimacy director on uh, Broadway. It just closed. It was Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. Audra McDonald and Michael Shannon were in it, and they had amazing things to say about her. Uh, a lot of publications like uh, The New Yorker and um, uh, basically they're just getting a lot of amazing press because of the incredible work that they're doing and because of the incredible need people are seeing in the aftermath of the Me Too movement. And also I, I, I can imagine in the work that is being being done on stage when you have safety and your choices. And we were talking about a little bit about this before we started this, the fact that you have a level of trust and a level of safety uh, that during these, even the most intimate of moments on stage, I, I imagine that frees you up enough to let you delve even deeper into the character that you are portraying. I would say that that is 100% true, and that's exactly what we're going for. It's the idea that um, sort of the, the, the uninhibited, free-spirited artist is kind of this myth that, like, in order to do good work, there need to be no rules, and you need to just, like, reject society and just, like, do whatever you want. Um, but the fact is, boundaries are what enables creativity. Um, I have a colleague who... Um, once described it to me as an actor looking at a blank canvas isn't inspired, they're paralyzed. Um, it's not until they confine themselves, give themselves the boundary of, I am painting a landscape, and then I am painting a tree. That's when the creativity can happen. And theater is no different. If you just put two actors in a room and say, make a scene. That's improv. That is improv. But And, and consent is, is clearly a very different issue in improv because people don't want to have to stop to ask in those contexts. But if you just give, if you give actors nothing, how, how good is that improv even going to, even if we were talking about improv, if you give them uh, really constraining prompts, like so many ridiculous prompts, like you have to make a reference to uh, an obsolete form of technology, you have to reference a show tune, you have to reference a past president. If you give all these constraining things, sort of that that's when you see really funny improv, right? Is when people have to get creative and work around those those boundaries. Yep. And they don't become, they rather than become boundaries, they become the the bones on which the scene is built. Absolutely, they're and, tools. And in inter intimacy theater is also that that same way. Uh, I'm, I, I, well, I, I I've never worked with an intimacy director. I I went to school uh, for acting in. I graduated in 1981, and back then it was that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, you have the, the lived experience that, that led to so many awful choices, like the actual rape that took place in Last Tango in Paris. Yeah. Uh, and so many, so many things. I had a, a woman that I went to, to college with started, uh, had, a, had a date set up with a, a, a film actor, a fairly well-known film actor, um, who was in rehearsal for a part where he was playing a very brutish man, and he essentially raped this woman during the date because he was in character. Wow. Yeah, that's... that's fucked that, up. Yeah, it really is. It really is that way. And so 
for me coming from this and hearing you talk about these things and, and comparing them to what I learned growing up, I'm like, of course this makes more sense. Of course this is an important thing to, to do, an important aspect of performance to, to, to work on. And I, I'm just so... Because it is work, right? Yeah. It's a craft. For some people, it's a job. Mm-hmm. So the expectation that while you are at work, you are supposed to open up your body, mind, and emotions to whatever sort of treatment is not something that we as a society really embrace as normal in any other industry. Like if your boss came up to you and your coworker and said, okay, now kiss, that would be an abuse and mm-hmm. that person would have HR all over them. But if a director just one day at rehearsal says, okay, we're doing that scene, now kiss – that's acceptable because you're an actor. You knew what you were getting into. You're supposed to be okay with that kind of behavior. And that's just not the case. There needs to be a conversation about bodily autonomy. There needs to be a conversation about consent. There needs to be a conversation about how we tell that story without endangering these people who are just doing their job the best they can. Now, look, go ahead. That's, I was, something has jumped in my head here. But where does uh, peer pressure has to come in at some point, too, with the actors saying... I might not be comfortable with this, but I know my director, my producer, the other actors need this from me. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's a great question because it's it's a big part of the work that just having a general conversation about consent doesn't necessarily fix. It's the power dynamics conversation. It's the 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 pressure conversation um, because a lot of people think that a cons- that consent is just a yes. Um, but consent is actually a yes under very specific uh, circumstances. A yes when coerced is not consent. A yes when there's something to lose is not consent. The uh, the absence of a no <laughs> is not consent. Um, honestly, a yes said like, okay, I guess so, is not consent. There, there are so many factors um, that go into actually a giving, that's why we often use the term enthusiastic consent, right? Because it means um, even if I don't feel comfortable with this, I feel confident about giving it a try. You're invested in that and you're, and you're willing to see it through. Yeah. Well, willing, I don't know, the word, the word willing makes me a little anxious because it makes me think of somebody who's just, who's just going to take it, who's just going to tolerate it because it'll be over soon. Um, I definitely, that's probably just my own semantics, how, how I view that word. No, but they, that's something to be very aware of, though, when you're working with somebody on a set, though. Yeah, because I think a lot of people w- would describe themselves as like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do it. I'm not excited about it, but whatever. And that would be concerning to me. That would sound like someone who's just going to get it over with and try to be okay. Um, when, if we had had a conversation about it, I might have been able to come up with an alternative that would still tell the same very intimate story, but in a way that wouldn't be violating to that person in a way that they would feel confident about. Yeah. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I'm also aware that I'm getting, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to ask this question and organically, but I don't see coming. So I just want to come up with it. How did you get involved in this particular um, position? In this particular, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Discipline. Discipline, that's it. Um, uh, Specialization. Yeah. Um, So I uh, started out as an actor, realized fairly early on that I was uh, much more passionate about directing. And as a director, it just so happened that I had two productions in a year um, that both uh, required a lot of intimacy. One was a more traditional love and sex story, and one was um, an adaptation of uh, the story of Faust that uh, had what the script called a demon orgy, Mm. so we had to navigate that. And basically, one of the shows, I had such a positive experience um, that I... My actors required so little direction. They... uh, The scene basically directed itself because they just were sort of up for anything and behaved really professionally and made a beautiful scene. Um, The other production, I felt very strongly that, well, basically it didn't go well. And I actually feel that I may have opened some of my cast members up to harassment and abuse. Mm. And I didn't feel that I had done anything differently, but both experiences had gone completely differently. So that started me thinking, 
there has to be a set of standards. There has to be a protocol. There has to be a discipline out there that I could use at the time. I was just thinking as a director to have more control over what happens to my actors because I'm responsible for their well-being as well as the well-being of, of the show. It can't just be luck of the draw. Do I have really professional people or do I have really sketchy people? Like it can't, the, it has to be more on me that, that they are taken care of and protected in those situations and that the process goes well. So I started researching and I found Intimacy Directors International um, and started implementing what I understood of, the, of their work around consent and started spreading the word around Rochester. Um, and then uh, almost exactly a year ago, I went away to my initial training in Champaign-Urbana just outside of Chicago um, and uh, just sort of when you, when you discover a new field and a new way of doing something, you kind of have this I once was blind but now I see moment. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you work your way towards what I've spent the last year realizing, which is how much you actually don't know and how much there is to learn. Um, so in February, I went to a pedagogy intensive, which is not just how to do the intimacy direction. It's how to teach the study of intimacy design. Um, and that was an incredible experience, really intense. You're basically in like a bunker with these people for, you know, nine days or whatever it was, and you're just working on consent and theater and intimate scenes and contact and emotional intensity. Um, and uh, it was a lot. I realized a lot of things about, about myself during that time, about why I was doing the work. Um, some of my reasons were very noble ones, and some of them were a little concerning to me in terms of like, vengeance against the people who have hurt me and my friends in the theater. Wow. That's never a good reason to, to come into work like this. When you have other people's um, safety and, and livelihoods and the excellence of their work in your hands, you can't have a personal agenda like that. And so I needed to really kind of root that out in myself and realize, no, this is the way that I can make theater better. This isn't a place for me to punish the wrongdoers. This is a place for me to empower the vulnerable and re-educate the people who might hurt the vulnerable. What a what great awareness to, to have that. I try, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. modest. Yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this question. Um, kind of ties into what you were saying there. Is there at any point during uh, productions that you have to be a, a buffer between cast members or the cast member and the director or cast member and a choreographer? Where does... The, the, that power dynamic as an intimacy director play out in, in during the actual process of learning and, and blocking and uh, refining the show? Um, when I hear the word buffer, my initial thought is, is yes, that's probably what I am. And that's because um, one of the um, sort of facets of being an intimacy director and probably one of the most important ones is being an actor advocate. Um, yes, I'm there as a movement designer, as a movement specialist. I know how to tell you what shape to move your hand in and how to arch your spine and what sound to make to make this seem like a really intense, physically intimate moment. But I'm also there to be that person who makes it okay to question the director's vision, who makes it okay to say no to a scene partner who who's really gung-ho about trying something a certain way. I'm the person who makes it okay to say no in a room where everybody has been told to say yes and mm. their entire <laughs> careers. Yep. Um, and it's, it's really important that I am, I, I wouldn't say I ever get between those people because it's so important for me to just be amplifying the voice of the actor. I can't bring my own well, your organization has a lot to learn about consent and power dynamics. It's It, it needs to be, you know, so-and-so isn't feeling confident about trying the scene that way. I think it would be more um, beneficial for the scene if we tried it this way um, or if we make that a boundary going forward. And it's interesting. You probably have to do, as, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of self-monitoring 
of how and why you're doing the things you're doing to make sure that you're the most effective intimacy director? Is that something that is brought up in, in the training or is that just something that you kind of intuitively know as an empathic person, empathetic person? Uh, it's a thousand percent part of the training. And it's why um, there isn't, unlike fight direction, there isn't a straightforward path to certification. It's not you take these classes, you pass this test. You, you enter an apprenticeship program mm -hmm. because there are so many intangible skills and so much self-reflection involved that they cannot teach you. They just sort of need to watch whether or not you are getting it because <laughs> they, they can't tell you it, that you're wrong about what your motives are. Mm -hmm. You need to reach that self-awareness on your own. Um, and it's, it's absolutely part of the training. And it's honestly, they talk about it as, you know, it's like 50% of the work. 50% of it is the actual intimacy direction you do in the room. And 50% of it is learning about yourself, how you respond to power dynamics, how you've been victimized, if at all, in the theater, um, uh, how, you, how you operate when you're emotionally charged. They say 50%. For me, I'm at the point where it is... It is it is most of the work, the self-reflection, where I'm really learning how certain types of personalities and egos affect me, how I can deflect certain types of negative energy in the rehearsal room, how I can really be diplomatic. So you mentioned like how to be diplomatic, how to be that buffer. But then during that process, especially with casting, if you know somebody who may potentially not work with another actor or if there's some chemistry issue, maybe somebody has some history the director doesn't know about. Do you ever step into the casting role and not the casting role, but so much maybe as an advisor there? Um, usually I'm not on board with a project at the casting stage. Usually it's once rehearsal has started. Um, that's that aspect is more of a, a, a culture wide shift, right? Like making it OK for people to speak up during the casting process and say, I'm sorry, this person's a known predator. I'm not going to work on a project with them. And having the casting directors not be like, oh, that's just, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Bill. That's just how he is. You know, he's really talented. You know, he means no harm. Guys you know, will be guys. Yeah, you know, I, ideally, when someone said something like that during the audition process, it would be taken seriously. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's not something I have a ton of... Uh, control over. You mentioned chemistry, and I always love to bring up chemistry because it's an excuse that people use for not giving parts. They'll say, well, they didn't have chemistry. Like, you were great in the role, you were great in the role, but they didn't have any chemistry together. Mm. Um, I feel I can say this as a director. That's a lazy director who, who, who won't cast someone because they believe the people don't have chemistry. And the reason why I say that is because a movement professional, and especially an intimacy professional for the theater, can tell a story of two characters who have chemistry without forcing that chemistry between the two actors. You shouldn't need to have friendly rapport or romantic attraction or whatever with every single person you do a scene with. You know, you can't have those emotional requirements at work. But what I can do is I can come in and whatever your relationship with that person outside of the rehearsal room, the characters have an intimate relationship. And I can tell that story. I could, like I said, I can show you how to move your body and how to change your, your voice and your breath and how close you stand together and how you look at each other. I can tell that story of chemistry. It's, it's not something that the actors need to have. It's something that the characters need to have. That's great. And also, we've, we've been talking about this primarily, and as, as I've been thinking about these scenes, I'm always thinking about the romantic scenes and the fraternal scenes and the scenes of love, but that's not all the only thing you do. Sometimes the, the, the dynamic between two characters is that one character is going to kill the other. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not, sorry, was that, were you going to say that, 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 Go for it. That, uh, so I'm, I'm not a trained fight director, but... Um, uh, as you know, we were talking about before the segment started, one of the most common ways in, in my experience, just that I've observed for people to discover the field of intimacy direction is to start out as a fight director mm -hmm. who gets asked to do a lot of uh, rape scenes. Uh, it's very it's very common. It's 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 something that people think is really sensational to put on stage. So a lot of fight directors get asked to do that. Then on productions where there is both rape and consensual sex, sometimes you'll have people be asked, oh, you did a good job on that sexual violence scene. Can you do the consensual sex scene? Hmm. 
And then you'll have these fight directors realize, well, that's, I'm not sure why, but that's very different. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm not trained for that. And so they start looking for the, the, the information and resources the way that I did. And what they will, what they will find out if they pursue training with Intimacy Directors International is that violence is actually under the umbrella of intimacy. They're not two separate fields. The reason why it feels like there's so much overlap is because there absolutely is. There is the intimacy of romance. There is the intimacy of sex. There is the intimacy of, you know, brotherhood, parent-child relationships, um, to general bonding. And then there is the intimacy of violence. It, it takes a lot to, to be close enough to someone physically and emotionally to put your hands on them with the intention to either harm them or take their life. It's, mm-hmm. it's intimate. And so um, fight directors, people who are trained in fight direction, actually have, I think, a really unique perspective and bring, bring a lot to in, the intimacy direction profession. Yeah, and I'm, I'm noticing that because uh, one of the people that you're working with, and I said, my son is going to be killed. <laughs> his, his character is, yes. Yes. And, 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 like he's, and he and, and, Well, first off, that's just kind of a running thing with my son and the, and the shows that I've seen. He dies so many times. He's just so good at it. He's good at that. And he also appears in his underwear so many times. And as, and as a theater lover, I really enjoy it. But there's still a part of me that he's up there being stabbed in his underwear. I'm going, that's my boy. <laughs> hey, he knows his niche. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things in that last commentary that you were going off one of the things you brought up about sexual assault is, and I think this mirror society is so much of sexual assault is done by people that we know that are close to us. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, on a set, you end up becoming friends and almost family, like at some level with those people around you because you're, you know, you're close to them for that amount of time. Yeah. And I just, and I just had this flashback and this is really raw to me for some reason. But when I was a young child, I was sexually assaulted and it was somebody close to me. And so how, how do you deal with those emotions that could come up? Because, you know, 35, 40% of the population has been raped or sexually assaulted in some form. So how do you deal with that on set? That is such a great question and maybe even more relevant than, than you were thinking when you asked. Um, a big part of the training for intimacy direction is mental health first aid um, and uh, what we call trauma stewardship. Um, and essentially, we're, we're not therapists, um, even if some intimacy directors are trained therapists. It's so not the place to do it, though. It's not the place. People are at work. They're, they're not looking to, you know, air their dirty laundry, even if it would be beneficial. You can't have that wound open while you're at work. It's just not healthy. Um, so what we can do is we, we, we put really healthy um, boundaries in place, not just physical ones so that people aren't touched in a way that's violating to them, but emotional ones so that they can separate what the character is doing from then going back to to their lives. Um, so yeah, boundaries are, are the first step. But then also, like I said, mental health first aid and trauma stewardship. A lot of people don't realize that they've experienced sexual assault or harassment until they get triggered, right? No, people don't just necessarily walk around being like, oh yeah, that thing that happened to me when I was a kid was traumatic and I'm dealing with it. Usually it, it ends up a little bit repressed or a lot repressed. But that's a very healthy attitude though. Oh yeah. If they, <laughs> if they do, more power to them. Good for you. You have an amazing therapist probably. But um, uh, yeah, but uh, more often than that, what we see is they're going through the motions that their body remembers as being a part of their trauma. And they're usually they're doing it for a role in my case, um, and it's it's going to trigger something, and they're not going to know why they have anxiety about this moment. Um, and basically, w- what I'm just equipped to do, being someone who's certified in mental health first aid, is sort of talk them off of. I don't like to use the language of like talking them off the ledge, but like um, talk them down from that elevated, aroused place that that being triggered Ooh. by PTSD. I love that language. Can, can cause. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking from my personal experience, I was involved in a show. Um, it was very early on in me realizing that intimacy direction was a thing. Um, might even predate that. Where um, there, there was an attempted sexual assault. And I was realizing that the kissing, even though it felt very intimate to me, because we did not have an intimacy director. Um, it was just two actors kissing each other. Um, that didn't trouble me or make me anxious. But there was a moment where he was supposed to push me down onto my back and climb on top of me, and then I was supposed to push him off. And um, I, for some reason, 
we would do all of the stuff leading up to that. He would, like, grope me, and I'd be like, I'm acting. This is fine. And then we'd get to the point where he had to push me down onto my back. And I would turn red, and I would start shaking, and I would get anxious and couldn't remember my lines. And I, we just never got through the scene because I would get so worked up and no one knew how to deal with it. And this was honestly predating me having any actual knowledge of intimacy direction, but this was my first intimacy direction moment, self-direction moment, where I realized that it was purely the muscle memory of one of my own sexual assaults mm. that being pushed onto my back triggered. We changed it so that he bent me over the back of the couch mm. and, like, tugged on my pants. It was still very explicit. It was still telling a story of an attempted assault. I ended up elbowing him in the gut instead of pushing him off of me. Um, the, the character, not the actor. The yeah. actor was fine. Um, but it was literally just that muscle memory that was triggering and traumatic for me. Um, so ideally, we have enough knowledge about people's personal boundaries that we can keep from ever getting to that place in a rehearsal scenario. But like I said, not everyone comes in with that level of awareness about, about their trauma. So if someone does get triggered, I can help de-escalate them. I can help calm them. I can, I can begin to help them talk about the fact that they've experienced trauma because that might be the, the hardest part is realizing, oh, my gosh, I was sexually assaulted and I just realized it in the middle of rehearsal. This is awful. And I can kind of help them. I use the imagery of, of putting that in a Tupperware and mm. opening it later with loved ones or with a therapist. Um, that's often helpful for people because if you just tell them to forget about it for the rest of rehearsal, they're, they're like, well, then, then what do I do with these feelings? So right. I'm, I more tell them to like, I, I guide them through putting the feelings aside until they can deal with it in a, in a safe place rather than at their job. But what an awful place, like if you are triggered, what is going back to being at work and figuring out that that figuring out you were sexually assaulted at the workplace like that. Yeah. That is such an awkward place to be in. So vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not trained in trauma psychology or anything like that, but I'm definitely trained in helping people who have various forms of um, anxiety and, and PTS um, just get back to baseline. I can't help treat their trauma, but I can help them cope with it in, in the moment so that they can get through the work. And you're doing such a great job. I, oh, thank you. Well, you are. And I'm not the only person who's saying this. I remember uh, Ralph Morato, who is yeah. the, uh, is, is the uh, artistic director of the JCC. I remember seeing when he talked about, about intimacy directing, uh, having an intimacy director and at the JCC, mm -hmm. uh, you, right? You were yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he... He yeah. will not do what I get, do any of these scenes. Yeah. yeah, he has been honestly such a surprise ally in the work for me. I think it's just my own prejudices. I think of artistic directors as having to be so focused on so many different things and focused mm -hmm. on finances and focused on mission and vision and, um, you know, focused on, you know, the politics that come with that, that I was not expecting him to just sit in on a single, because Lindsay Warren Baker, I had worked with outside of the JCC before. She's an amazing director. Love mm -hmm. working with her. She brought me into the JCC for Indecent. I was not expecting Ralph to sit in on a single rehearsal, see how I did my job, realize that he immediately needed me for the next show that he was directing, and to then come on local television saying, well, I'm never doing that a different way ever again. Yeah. <laughs> Jace is always working on my shows. What an endorsement. Yeah. yeah and he... He is, he has such the right mindset about the work because so many people just kind of want to use it as like, like a legal protection. Like I want to protect my company against sexual harassment. Which is a good place to start from. Oh, well, absolutely. Let's protect your company from sexual harassment. But also Ralph is in this mindset of, um, sorry, from sexual harassment allegations. Yeah. Um, uh, but Ralph is very much in the mindset of, we can make these intimate scenes tell better stories with the help of someone who has this expertise. He, um, he, I'm not going to drop the name of the show because it may or may not happen, but he's been talking about hiring me for a show that doesn't actually have a love scene, so to speak of. It's just two people who are married and he wants their body language to very clearly indicate that, that they're married. Um, and so he's, he's in such a, he understands the scope of the work so well and has been really vocal about supporting it.
Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I've never met Ralph, but I would also say I would imagine that not only from making the story better, but also I bet he has a really big heart for the actors and the performers who are on his shows. Absolutely. People have such good experiences working at the JCC, and I know that it's because he is such a great blend of of respecting and humanizing people, but having a really high standard of creativity and excellence. Um, it's it's been an honor working with him and a great business vision too. Absolutely. Let's let's do a little bit of business for here. We're going to wrap up here, but I want one more time to uh, to to plug you. How will people get in touch with you if they're interested in learning more about intimacy directing, either as a as a performer or as a director, or even just as someone who might be interested in becoming an intimacy director themselves? Great. So if you're interested in pursuing the work yourself, you definitely want to do your research and you want to start working through Intimacy Directors International. They're the industry standard right now. So you can find them at teamidi.org. A lot of great resources. Also, their upcoming um, workshops and things like that for specifically training to be an intimacy director or coordinator are on there. And then if you want to get in touch with me for working on a production or helping your ensemble out with a workshop for consent or things like that, um, more locally focused stuff, Mm -hmm. um, uh, my website is jcmeyercrosby.com. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook at J.C. Meyer Crosby Theater and Consent Artist. We're going to put all those information, all that information, all those links up uh, on on the on the website. That's going to be uh, with with the show and your your Fringe Festival production. One more time, yes, yeah, is- Homo Familiaris by Gray Noise Theater Company, and it's at the Muck September thirteenth and sixteenth. All right, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you very much, Jace Meyer Crosby, for being on the show. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about some uh, some transgender issues would you like to stick around and uh, throw your voice into there as well or do you want to get oh, going sure why not oh wonderful okay this is transformation thursday and we will be right back this portion of transformation thursday is brought to you by scientific discovery yes the process of systematic observation measurement and experimentation and the formulation testing and modification of hypotheses has affected literally everything in the world it's brought us aspirin penicillin and hormone replacement therapy it's also brought us ricin sarin and weaponized anthrax scientific discovery has proven things like the role of humans in catastrophic climate change and it's also been used to disprove exactly that. This is because the process of science is not fully understood and thus is itself weaponized. Let's show you how in a little sketch. Hey, Amy, there's a study out that shows the correlation between the size of a person's foot and their intelligence. Really? Yep, it shows that the bigger a person's feet are, the higher they scored on tests. Wow, you're a much bigger genius than I am. Yeah, except what wasn't mentioned is that this study was a study of children, and the kids with the larger feet were almost always older and had more education. Oh, well, I've stopped growing, so I guess I'm as smart as all ever be. No, that's... But this is how scientific discovery is misused in society. In science, the publication of a study really is far closer to the beginning of the process than the end. Once it's published, other scientists will examine it and attempt to replicate it, and their results will either support and refine the initial results, or they will disprove it. But that's not something that makes headlines like the initial study. Science, like everything else, is a tool. And if you parrot something that's been disproved because it supports your prejudices, then you're a tool yourself. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm still Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her as well. In this segment, we're going to look at a study that was recently released by a researcher at the Department of Sociology, the Women's and Gender Studies at the Center for Social Justice at the University of Oklahoma. Sociologist Meredith Worthen study a rainbow wave LBGTQ liberal political perspectives during Trump's presidency and exploration of sexual gender and queer identity gaps revealed something rather surprising. According to her study, which surveyed more than 3,000 people, roughly half of which identified as being LBGTQ+, those who identified as transgender were, quote, significantly less liberal, end quote, than even cisgender men, and thus were outside of what she referred to as the luminous lavender liberalism of the LBGTQ plus community. 
Another discovery in her study was that there was a great disparity between those identifying as transgender and those identifying as non-binary, two groups that are usually put together in discussions of Q-folk. Her study found that NBs are, as a group are significantly younger, with more than half being under the age of 35 and far more liberal than any of the other groups. And so we're going to be back and we're going to be talking about that study and about some of the results of that study and about studies in general. And Jace, we're inviting you to be on this because you are a, may I tell them that you are a transgender man? Uh, I think you, you just did. You just did that. Oh, well, I can always stop and erase <laughs> if I need to. No, you may do that. Yes. Uh, I'm also a millennial, so I'm part of that uh, that Ooh. scary group that they're uh, referring to, that lavender liberal LGBTQ The, the lavender liberal lesbian. Le, 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 lavender liberal. That's hard to say it. Yes, it is. Lavin, l- luminous lavender liberalism. So let's. So this will be interesting. And when we come back, because baby boomer for Penny, mm-hmm. Gen X for me, and Jace is the millennial. Look at us spanning oh the generations. Goodness, how about that? So, um, first off, I have to a disclaimer here. I did not actually read the study because it was behind a paywall. I did read the uh, the executive summary of it, and I also read um, an interview in uh, DC Metro Weekly, which is the DC LBGTQ magazine that I read because they called my show a must see in, uh, in 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 2017. Gotta they got that right. Patronage. Yeah, exactly. So, but the but the uh, the woman who 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 did the study was surprised at this, as am I, that uh, that that transgender. Uh, folk, as a rule, were much significantly less liberal than even cisgender men. A couple of takeaways that I had about that from 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 reading what I could about this. First off, the cisgender men also included gay men, as as because <laughs> it does not say cisgender heterosexual. It didn't say it was right. it's just cisgender. So that she I'm grouped. Sorry, white white gay cis men are are toxic AF. <laughs> well, they're, yeah. That's, that's, that's a, tell, go that, ahead. That, yeah, that's a sensitive <laughs> subject. And, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and it's not without, without truth. Um, there, there are some, there are, there are some men out there that are, um, that, that have some very interesting viewpoints about this, but there are also, in my experience there, I have met several, uh, trans women who are staunch Republicans. They really are, um, and including uh, and I all. When I transitioned, uh, a lot of people came up to me and asked me this question: Are you doing this because of uh, of, of because of what um, Caitlyn Caitlyn Jenner uh, Caitlyn Jenner did? Because we transitioned at almost exactly the same time. So oh. there were a lot of people that asked me that question, and it's like, and I said, of course, I said yes, because I, I remember she's a trendsetter. Yeah, what I, can I, I say? Well, well, it even goes far back in 1976 when you know she was lapping with a flag around her after the decathlon. I said, when that dude wears a dress, I'm wearing one too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not true. But um, no, but but that's, that's so good. But 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 yeah, when pigs fly and yeah, Bruce exa- Jenner wears a dress. But let's oh, but yeah, is. but but let's look at the facts. Here that, that there are a lot of transgender women who transitioned, who like uh, like me, transitioned later in life, who managed to navigate the the, the society uh, with, as I had mentioned earlier to uh, to uh, um, Evan Dawson, as white men, they got to live life with all the cheat codes, and yep. they were very very successful people. Yep. And so they have that business person's viewpoint of I've made it, and so therefore I am successful, and therefore this this society is a is a great thing, and they're very much are much more conservative because they are looking at things from that viewpoint. Then even after they transition, yeah, they are they are still quite um, quite biz, pro business and quite uh, they may not be Trump supporters, yeah, but they are 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 fairly conservative in a lot of their viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something there. So where's it? But what isn't defined from what we've spoken about with this survey is what defines conservative versus liberal? I mean, 
Yeah. You and I, we are self-admitted left-wing lunatics almost, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't want to call, well, we're not lunatics, but, you know, we, we are lefties. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. So right. are they moderate? Are they left-leaning? Are they right-leaning? Where, where do you think these people land? That's a good question. And one of the things that I, th- I, that I thought of is just because you are, more, you are less liberal does not mean that you are not liberal. Yeah. I mean, uh, Nancy Pelosi is significantly less liberal than AOC is. Yes. They're both Democrats. Yeah. So they're both left leaning. They're both left leaning. Is one's leaning left a little bit more than the other, yeah. or a lot more than right. the other? <laughs> yeah. Just indict the bastard, Nancy. Yeah, that's that's what would have been interesting about impeach. Yeah, impeach. Thank you. <laughs> that's what would have been interesting about um, seeing the entire survey, because you would have seen if people. I'm sorry, seeing the actual study as opposed to the yeah. executive summary, because you would have seen. Are people self-identifying as conservative or are they just listing their where they stand on policy mm-hmm. and then on a scale they yeah. are more conservative? And also what sort of questions they – and one of the questions they ask is are you a feminist? Mm. You know, and there are there are and then other issues that and, – and it's very interesting the way that you would – a way that a question is asked is oftentimes uh, – can, can get different things. For example, um, I – if you know when I when I was living life as a man, um, if I got a a woman pregnant, I would not want my vote. To, my my vote would be to have the child. Uh, and that so if they said you know if you got if if you got a, if 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 there was a pregnancy situation in your life, would you have an abortion? My answer would be no. Mm-hmm. I would not. However, if the question is asked, do you believe in a woman's right to choose? My answer would be yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all about survey design. And exactly. When, and I would like to look at this one and see how it was turned out. But that's not really the thing that got me the most about the survey. The thing that really got me, that really got me juiced was the, uh, the, the recognition of the non-binaries and the fact that in the groups, the, the, the non-binaries were far younger than any other group. Uh, more than 50% of them were under the age of 35 years old. Mm-hmm. Which made me wonder how many of them were able to explore uh, their gender diversity as young children. Yeah, I I think the short answer is many more than in previous generations. And it's for me because I come from a a communication uh, field of study and a a profession that is very based on communication and, and inclusive language and respectful language. Having words for concepts, especially concepts as relating to identity, can create the uh, sort of myth of uh, something being new with a certain generation. So we, we have a lot of people, we even have elder trans people claiming that being non-binary is invalid, that it's a phase, that these people are, are coming up with a new identity, that this has never existed before. When in reality, we haven't had words, we haven't had vocabulary, mm-hmm. we haven't had the support and safety to talk about these issues before. So people who have always existed are coming out in droves right now. Right. And people who are raised by the internet, mm-hmm. you know, we, G- Generation Z is, is essentially called, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, Generation Z being the one to come after millennials was the first generation to be raised by the internet. They never knew a time without the internet. And therefore, they had this incredibly massive global community mm-hmm. where they could see people talking about these issues, using these terms, bringing these identities into the light. And so they were much more likely to come out at very young ages because they were much more able to explore their gender diversity at young ages, as opposed to people like like your lovely selves who had to unfortunately live long and closeted lives due to not being in supportive environments and Boy. not having people around you talking about these Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> well, he's right. Because when I realized that I had a gender variance, I, there, was, there was nobody in the world like me as far as I could tell. Mm. There was, I, I grew, this was in Corning, New York in 1967 or 68, about as white a town as you could possibly live in, very conservative, very wealthy. There wasn't anybody or anything around there. There were no there were no professionals around there. That's another thing that I want to bring up is the fact that there are professionals out there. There are mental health professionals who are doing work with these kids to help them explore. And if their if if their conclusion is well, 
I'm either not going to decide right now or I'm never going to decide. They are supported in this. And so I'm wondering if they're ever going to get to a point where transgender is even in the uh, non-binary, in, in a gender fluid community, going to be the minority. Hmm. That's a good crystal ball question. But I want to go back and talk a little bit about Gen Z because I'm the parent of a Gen Z child. Mm -hmm. And even if what I see with that generation is massive amounts of acceptance. Now, there are going to be your pockets within within any group that are going to be a little bit different. But my my daughter is a cisgendered woman. Um, so far identifies as straight. Um, if she wants to correct me sometime, she can let me know, but we'll leave that up to her. But that, but that acceptance is so much different than what we ever experienced. And I want to harken back to episode one, when we were talking about that study through the University of Minnesota that found that 3% of the high school students in Minnesota identified as transgender or non-binary. So not only are they feeling more comfortable, but they're also identifying, answering that question in our survey as well. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, I would love to, to kind of parse out why we might have younger people who identify as non-binary describing very liberal leanings and why we might have older people um, who identify as trans um, identifying a little more conservatively. And um, I guess to, to start out that conversation, I'd like to kind of go back to the very controversial statement that I led with, which is that I firmly believe that um, white, gay, um, cisgender men are incredibly dangerous. You know, when, when women say men are trash, it's, you know, it's not helpful to say not all men because they still need to be afraid of all men, even though there are good ones out there. I feel that way about, um, about cis gay men because... The trend that I notice, especially in our current um, political climate, is that so many people groups are looking for ways in which they can feel a little less oppressed. And that usually leads to, who can I convince myself that I'm a little bit better than? Hmm. Which is why we have so many white, gay, cisgender men who are very anti-trans, very anti-NB, um, um, a part of a lot of white nationalist groups. We got the Milo Yiannopoulos of the world and, and things like that. And I, I attribute it to the fact that they, they know that their lives are not going to be easy in our current political climate as um, non-hetero people. And they're sort of grasping as, as, as in large groups at people that they can single out so that they feel like they still have a little bit of privilege, which is why you get, I think, you know, groups like Gays for Trump. Um, like, how can you support someone who's so vocally hateful against the gay community? It's because you're not clinging to the fact that he is hateful against the gay community. You're clinging to the fact that he's hateful against women and he's hateful against people of color. Oh, ding, ding. <laughs> um, and... And, you know, that, he, that he's also hateful against trans people. Like, I literally feel like people are trying to, to cling to, I think oppressed people are looking to cling to what little bit of privilege that they have. And uh, so that, that's, that's sort of the background for my, for my very inflammatory statement. But I also sense some personal experience with it, too, that, I mean, if, you, if there isn't any, fine, but if there is some, I mean, always feel free to share what you're comfortable with. Honestly, no. I'm speaking. Okay. I'm speaking more on a global scale in terms of how how um, white cis gay men tend to tend to align politically. And um, I think. And I think going back to something, I think for a lot of cis people, they would be surprised to hear these comments coming out of you know transgender folks' mouth because everybody we tend to get lumped as one big acronym. Oh, absolutely. And but when I've started coming out, and I think Penny, you and I spoke about this. A lot of times people are just aren't comfortable. They're comfortable with the LGB, but they leave us out. Yeah, that happens a lot. I And I have been very vocal about my dissatisfaction as a naming of the group as the LBGTQ+. It just feels like uh, it's... it's it's so unwieldy. It just feels like the Czechoslovakia of, of you know, 
uh, advocacy groups because everyone's here under this one rainbow colored umbrella because there's no place else for us to go and everyone's jockeying for their particular initial to be in their, this particular spot and their stripe of the rainbow to be larger than everybody else's, yep. which I think is, is very destructive uh, in, 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 a, in a larger sense. And the, the, the G is, is, the, is, quite frankly, the largest part of it. Yeah, and I, and I think that harkens to, to what I was saying, is that everybody is sort of scrambling for their seat at the table where none of us are welcome. But is that is that possible that that sort of act... First off, I, I think a little bit of tension in groups like this is a good thing. Hmm. Um, as, as a parent, I, I use a lot of analogies in my talks, as far as a parent is concerned, and when I look at kids, when I see kids that are like agitated and pissed off at each other, um, I immediately recognize that this is a family that has a certain amount of safety to it because mm. in the families where uh, the kids are sticking together, it's because they all know that if they don't, there's a real good chance that they're going to, they're going to get killed or get injured or separated and things like that. Mm. And so they have a very strong Binding. It's it's when there is growth and there is safety yeah. that you have this sort of acrimony. So we are now at a point where we can look at this and and have the opportunity uh, to be mature about this and to be healthy about this and recognize these things and be able to say things to each other and, and work things out. I would love to be to to see the LBGTQ disappear as a as a nomenclature yeah. and have something else replaced. I like the I just like Q. One thing that, that that's being pushed for is the acronym SAGA, Sexuality and Gender Acceptance. Mm, I like that. Ooh. Yeah, there's there's another one that I that I was saying for a while until I realized that um, you know that, that it, it was it was a it could potentially be used by NAMBLA people to. I'm trying to remember what it was. I, I was using it for a while. Oh, GSM, Gender and Sexual Minorities. <laughs> yeah. But then I realized, yeah, NAMBLA could 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 easily run into that, so I stopped using that one. But SAGA. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the only thing that I don't like about GSM is that we're, we're sort of moving as a culture away from describing oppressed people as minorities, because let's face it, it's never been about how many there are of us. You know, mm. there, there are more non-white people in the U.S. than there are white people right now, but white people are still the power majority, even though numerically yeah. they're, they're, they're not. So I, I, I like keeping the focus a little more positive. I like that. I like that a lot. And there's a lot to discuss here. Uh, I think we can all agree that uh, if this study gets a little more scrutiny, it's probably going to be uh, blown up as a, as, a, uh, as, a, as a poorly constructed study. But it's really interesting. Jumping off point for this discussion, I'm really glad you stayed around to, to do this. Yeah. So really good. And that's, uh, we're about out of time. So we're going to wrap up here and then we're going to come back with a, a quick goodbye. I want to thank you, Jace Meyer Crosby, for coming here and thank being you. on both of these uh, these segments and being such a, a swell fella in general. <laughs> it was great to be included. Thanks so much. And, and maybe uh, you might be able to come back again sometime, Ever? I would love to. All right. That sounds good. That's a vote for people who like us, Amy. Put, put, <laughs> One. put them on the Christmas card list. <laughs> so thank you very much, Jace, for being here. And we will be right back. This is Transformation Thursday. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her as well. Well, Amy, we managed to not screw up an entire hour and actually have people talk about, have someone talk about something interesting Without us messing it up too much. Yeah, I, I think that's where we excel, though, actually. And not messing up? Yeah. Well, maybe you, not me. No, no, no. You're Wasn't too hard Chase, on yourself. Yeah, I am. But isn't Chase amazing? Jace was extremely amazing. I, I did not know Jace before this week, really, and I saw all the all the buzz on my Facebook feed about his article in the city newspaper here in Rochester. Yeah. And so we became Facebook friends, but, and I don't have the theater background. One thing that was very obvious in this conversation was the theater background that the both of you have. And I think this kind of ties into my learning from this is mm -hmm. that 
there is so much similarity between art and real life. And as Jace was talking, his words caused me to bring up things from my childhood that triggered me. And so that's one of the things. And I could see where in an acting way where this is work, this is where you're going to get your paycheck. You're working with these people. Dealing with these issues is such a sensitive and important topic for actors. And so I'm really pleased to see that he's out there doing this work and because this is really important and this is, this can affect people's lives at very deep personal levels. Yeah, and from a theatrical standpoint and from an artist's standpoint, having him on the stage and on, on the on the on in rehearsal and working with the actors is making the product better. Yep. And so even though you may not have an acting background, you are an enjoyer of popular culture and productions. And so the the shows that you see are going to be better the more intimacy uh, issues are are brought up. Um, and in the, the second segment about um, this study, it, 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 yeah, I have to last, but I, I really am excited about the, the, the choices that are available to uh, younger gender questioning people today. Yeah, those, those, are, those are, they have the opportunity to explore like we never did. And it's so great and such a wonderful opportunity. And I was, Jace took that conversation, I think, in a direction we weren't really anticipating either. Um, but that's really an interesting conversation that we could do a whole because, I mean, recently a lot of pride festivals have had this issue come up where a lot of people don't want to participate because it's just become a white gay man's festival. Yeah. Um, so that there's a lot more that we can we can discuss of that in future episodes, which there will be if we get help from you. And there will be whether we get the help from you or not. But it would be great if you, you get pitched in. Uh, you can go to our Patreon page. What would be that? What would that be, Amy? I'm going to do it this way today. www.transformationthursday.com. And on our Patreon page, I'm going to be putting up some videos this week, and we'll be putting up some pictures and some information. And you know what? I never did put up my comedy act from London. I think I should do that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's the best thing ever, ma'am. It's going to be a, a, a pip pip. It's going to be a real old shut up, Penny. I can't even do it a British accent anymore. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our show. We'll be back next week with more weird stuff on Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens. And I'm Penny Sterling. Good night.